This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. When you started writing this book, you were drawing on your experience from countries outside the United States, but you knew you were writing about the United States. So let's trace the argument. You have four building blocks, four risk factors. Let's trace them and tell us about what you see in other countries, and then we'll talk about their application to the United States. Then we'll get to questions that were uh, posited by our online audience, that it numbers about 300, and then we'll get to questions in the last 15 minutes from you all. So, yeah, so start out with the factors. First of all, thank you all for being here. Thank you, Dean Freund, for having me here. And Thad, thanks for reading the book (laughs) and and sitting up here with me. Uh, I started thinking about this book in in 2016. And and to be honest, when I started to write it, I thought it was going to be a labor of love and nothing beyond that. In fact, I thought it was probably going to hurt my career. uh, because it was, I, I really believed it was going to fall through the cracks. Uh, it was, I was not writing an academic book, so academics were not going to be interested in this book. Um, in fact, when I talked about um, putting it on my review for UCSD, I was told that it wasn't really going to count because it wasn't, it wasn't an academic book. Um, and I thought the mass public wasn't going to read it because it was going to be too academic-y. And I, I still did it because it, I, I felt like there was all of this information that I had. I've been studying civil wars for 30 years around the globe. There's an enormous amount of amazing research on civil wars, and it's not accessible to the public. It's not known by the public. Um, and, And even academics... Um, They'll know sections of that research, but putting it all together and connecting all the dots and telling a coherent story just hadn't been done. And so I I felt like it was this labor of love to do that. And if people were interested in it, fine, but really it was sort of the culmination of a career of studying this. In 2017, I got asked to serve on a... Uh, task force run through the CIA, and it was called the Political Instability Task Force, and I served on it for five years until the end of 2021. And the task force, um, our mission was to help the U.S. government come up with a predictive model that would help them predict what countries around the world would experience instability and political violence in the near future. Um, the CIA is not allowed to study the United States. We never talked about the United States. And in fact, in the early years, it didn't occur to us to to even even think about it. Um, We studied the countries of Africa. We studied Sierra Leone and Liberia. We studied the countries of Central Asia, Tajikistan and Georgia, the countries of the Middle East, Southeast Asia. And... The model, when we first started working on it, and the the task force, by the way, was a mixture of academics, experts, political scientists, economists, sociologists, anthropologists who studied conflict, and data analysts. And the data analysts were in charge of the model, and we would sit in conference rooms in hotels uh, in suburban Virginia, and the data analysts would grill us, and they would say, tell us everything that you think could potentially be important um, in the outbreak of civil war. And we talked about a lot of things. We talked about, in fact, over, we considered over 30 different factors, 
poverty, income inequality, how ethnically and religiously diverse a country was, whether the country geographically was large or not, or small, whether it had a really big population or not, everything we could think of. And the data analysts played with these factors until they found a model that best predicted civil war. And they looked at political instability, whether a government had a change of leadership, but they also looked at civil war. And it turns out that two factors, more than anything else, predicted civil war. This surprised us. We thought the model was going to be more complicated than that. And it also surprised us which of the two variables were important. Again, we had no influence it, on it. In fact, we were agnostic about which factors um, would ultimately be important and which should be important. Um, and the data analysts found that the two important variables was something called anocracy. Um, and I remember when I wrote that down, I thought my editor is going to make me take that out um, because it's just horrible political science lingo for partial democracy. Anocracy simply means partial democracy. It's governments that are neither fully democratic nor fully autocratic. There's something in between. My editor loved that term. I, again, I don't know why. She said, no, 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 this is going to resonate because people are seeing that democracies are declining, but they think about um, political regimes as uh, governments as either being democracies or non-democracies. And non-democracies, they're thinking about authoritarian countries. They're thinking about Iran. <clears throat> they're thinking about these types of regimes. They're not thinking that there could be something short of that that, in fact, could be even more dangerous, at least in the short term. So this first factor was really important. It turns out that fully democratic governments, countries, um, almost never experience civil war. Fully autocratic governments rarely experience civil war. Almost all of the violence happens in between these two governments. The second factor that turned out to be really important was something that we called ethnic factionalism. Again, <clears throat> that's a political science term. Um, for, for a population that has decided to organize itself politically around identity. So you have political parties that are not based on what people believe ideologically. So you don't have a, a socialist party and a liberal party or, or you know, however, or a left party and a right party. But people organize themselves based on their ethnicity, their religion, or their race. <clears throat> um, and it's countries that are these partial democracies with um, identity-based parties that are the ones that are at the highest risk of civil war. So if a country has these two features, the task force would put that country on what we called a watch list. It was really called the watch list. And we would give it to the Department of Defense and to the White House. And I don't know what they did with it, I assumed. They watched these countries. Um, but these countries were considered at high risk of political violence. So I'm sitting, again, I'm sitting at these meetings. We're meeting four times a year. Um, and, and I would leave these meetings, and I would read the newspaper like the rest of us, and I would watch what's going on here in the United States, and I started to see that these two factors started to emerge 
here, and they started to emerge at a surprisingly fast rate. So, you know, most Americans know that our democracy has gotten weaker, but they don't know to what degree because they don't follow the data sets. They're not, <clears throat> they're not checking the data every year the way um, academics are. But the U.S.'s democracy um, has declined since 2016. We were downgraded for the first time um, in 2016 for a number of reasons, but, but one of the big reasons was because international election observers, they go <clears throat> to all countries around the world, they come here as well, and they monitored the 2016 election and they deemed it free, but not entirely fair. And it wasn't entirely fair in their opinion because there was partisan, partisan meddling at the local level and because, and this was confirmed by our intelligence agencies, because the Russians uh, under Putin <clears throat> had um, meddled um, uh, via social media, uh, tried to influence the outcome of that election as well. We were downgraded again in 2019 um, and in that case, it was because the executive branch, the White House, refused to respond to requests for information from Congress and refused to reply to subpoenas. Um, and the, if, if you know how the U.S. government has been constituted, our founding fathers um, uh, set up a series of checks and balances. And the biggest check on executive power is the legislature. Um, and our executive branch, the president here in the United States, has been growing in power relative to the other branches long before even Donald Trump came to power. Um, <clears throat> so we were downgraded again. And then by the end of 2020, by the end of uh, Donald Trump's administration, we were downgraded for the first time since 1800 um, to an anocracy. Um, and, and the reason for that was because we had a sitting president who was unwilling to accept the results of the election and actively tried to overturn it. So I, I want to, let's talk a little bit more about this point. So, yeah. and bring in your comparative perspective. Yeah. So, so one of the, the scores, the, the most commonly used score that you cite when you, when, yeah. uh, when you provide this documentation is polity. Polity goes from 10 full democracy to negative 10 full autocracy. Yeah. The anocracy uh, realm is negative 5 to 5. We went from a 10 when Donald Trump was first elected mm -hmm. to a 5. Yeah. For context, South Africa in 1988 under apartheid was a 4. Yeah. Is it really that bad? Have we come yeah. so far so yeah. quickly? In a comparative perspective, you know, looking at the countries that you study and know so well, is it, do, do you have this sense that, that, is there, that that's where we are right now? So it's where we are in, well, first of all, we were upgraded again to a positive eight. So currently we're at a positive eight. That happened after we had a peaceful transfer of power. Um, uh, Joe Biden was inaugurated and we now have an administration that's adhering to the rule of law. Uh, you know, but that could change quite quickly. The, the thing to understand about this measure, anocracy, it, it, um, 
It comes from a, a nonprofit organization called the Center for Systemic Peace. Um, it measures uh, every single country around the world every year. And it's not necessarily interested in democracy per se. It will look at, um, you know, Belarus and Botswana. It looks at every country, whether it's a democracy or not. It's interested in the strength of democratic institutions and in particular constraints on executive power. So it's, it's, not, it's not really, the, in some ways, the best measure of democracy per se. The Center for Systemic Peace, for example, does not consider suffrage. Um, it, it, it is not interested in um, popular participation in government, whether every single group in society has um, an equal right to vote. There are other data sets that measure that. Varieties of Democracy, which is done through a, um, an organization in Sweden, is really interested in that. Um, the polity scale really looks very specifically at institutions, checks and balances. And, and I don't know why they do that. That's what they chose to do. I, I think really they were, it, it's an enormous data set and anocracy is just one of the measures. It looks at other different things. Um, but it is really interesting because it's, it's almost assuming that it doesn't, that, that, it, that you really need strong checks and balances um, in order to preserve a democracy over time. It doesn't mean it's going to be a perfect democracy. It doesn't mean that, that it's a democracy um, that allows everybody to, to vote. But to, but to preserve it from a strong man or a strong woman who might come into power. And again, the task force was really ag agnostic about um, what measure of democracy mattered the most. We included lots of different other measures that talked about um, whether there was full participation and full suffrage in a country. The variable that mattered the most was this measure of the strength of the institutions. So, so it, it does seem when you think, oh my gosh, you know, the United States is a negative five. Does that mean it's it's kind of just a? Um, it, it, does that mean it's it's equal to some of these other countries? Um, and what was the example you gave? South Africa. Oh, South, South Africa, Africa. Um, where where you didn't, you know, where you had a minority regime and the majority black population was completely disenfranchised. It's it's different because um, it's really just looking at one aspect of democracy. And maybe thanks for pointing out checks and balances. Maybe that's something we can get back to. One of the qu clear lines of inquiry that the that the online audience was most interested in is how do you protect and preserve so so yeah. you know we'll, we'll we'll get there but let's let's keep building your argument yeah. so factionalization yeah. factionalism what what is that what what are the risks that it that it creates um for uh, and and who are the people yeah, yeah. who are most likely who are these sons of the soil yeah yeah, so uh, Fed asked about four factors, and I talked about two. Um, those are the two underlying conditions that put countries at high risk of civil war. But then there's the question of who tends to start civil wars. Um, and I talk about um, this group that's called Sons of the Soil. 
And um, again, if you look historically, if you look at all the other countries that have experienced civil war, especially those that have experienced ethnically based, where it breaks down along ethnic or religious lines, um, it tends to be started by the same type of group. And again, it's not who you think. Most people think that civil wars are going to start, be started by the poorest groups in society or by the groups that are most heavily discriminated against or by immigrants. They don't start civil wars. They tend to um, not they tend not to have the capacity to do that. Um, they're working really hard. They don't have access to resources. Governments tend to be keeping their eye on those groups and repressing them pretty heavily. The groups that tend to start civil wars are groups that had once been politically dominant in a country but are in decline. Um, and so it's when they are losing power or they have recently lost power um, that they become heavily disenchanted with the existing system, an existing system that they can no longer compete in. And that's when they begin, or at least extreme elements within that group begin to mobilize. And I'll give you a really good <clears throat> example of well, and then let me talk about the fourth, and then I'll give you an, an example to bring this all to life. Um, so the fourth question that we grappled with is, okay, you have these underlying conditions, you have this declining group that we call sons of the soil. What about the timing? These underlying conditions and these groups can be declining for a long period of time. What accounts for when they turn to violence? And I talk about it as a loss of hope. It's when this group has hard evidence that, in fact, they're never going to get power back legitimately or by working within the system. And that's when extreme elements of their group who promote radical and extra legal means of change, when they, that's when they begin to be able to start recruiting from the larger population. And, and, and you see some of that happening here in the United States. So the really classic example of all of this is the former Yugoslavia. Um, so in 1989, between 1989 and 1991, the Soviet Union is declining. Um, Yugoslavia suddenly finds itself free to choose whatever political system it wants. And Yugoslavs very quickly decide they want democracy. And so you're going from a government under Tito that was an authoritarian regime, to a situation where now there's competitive elections. It's not a full democracy. The, institution, the democratic institutions are brand new. Um, you know, the, the, the government is still weak. It would be solidly in the anocracy zone, but it moved there quite rapidly. You had old-time Communist Party members. Slobodan Milosevic <clears throat> had political power during, during the Soviet era. He suddenly finds himself in this new world where he has to actually compete in competitive elections. He knows that Yugoslavs hate communists, and he knows that they know that he's a communist. So he's not going to be competitive compared to these newbies that are coming on the scene promising democracy, promising all sorts of goodies. But he's smart and he's strategic. And he figures out <clears throat> that, it, that Serbs are the largest ethnic group in Yugoslavia, and he's a Serb. 
So if he can convince Serbs not to vote for, the, for whoever was running as a socialist or a communist or you know, a reformist, but instead wrote, vote for a Serb, then he could potentially have enough votes to win. And that's exactly what he did. He had control of state radio. He had control of state, uh, state television. And he propagated this continuous message of fear and of impending threat and of insecurity and change. And he kept telling the Serbs, if you don't stick together during this time of uncertainty, if you don't vote for a Serb, then the Croats are going to vote for a Croat, and the Croats are going to come to power. And if the Croats gain political power, then they're going to throw all of you out of your jobs. They're going to throw you out of the military. And they could, and some of them could start killing you like they did during World War II. And it was this incredibly effective message that resonated with average people because they were living in a period of change and uncertainty. They were they were insecure about what was happening and who was, come, who was going to come to power. And Milosevic convinced them to back him in this Serb party, which is a classic ethnic faction. Right. So he created one of the underlying conditions. He did. Right. And, and, and so this was – and so, so now that this story, and it's similar to the story of the Ba'ath Party and yeah. the Sunni Muslims exactly. in Iraq, yeah. right? So, they, so there's this moment and there's – this spark. So what's the spark that leads to the conflagration? Um, and what do you, or, or, you know, in yeah. either of those countries, or what do you see as that spark, yeah. as, as the possibilities for that spark yeah. in the United States now? Yeah. So we, as, okay, I'm going to put my social scientist hat on. We actually don't know. We don't have a lot of evidence. Um, and there haven't been a lot of studies about what that spark is. So if there's graduate students in the room uh, <laughs> who are looking for dissertation topics, this is, this is such an important question that we don't have a lot of hard evidence for. There's been, you know, one or two... Um, studies that point to the power of elections. I'll talk about that in a second. There have been one or two studies that talk about the power of failed protests. So when I talk about the loss of hope, um, the loss of hope, I think, happens when these declining groups suddenly see that working within the system will have no effect. Um, this happened in Northern Ireland with the Catholics. Um, they had been protesting for decades, peacefully protesting for decades against the, the very repressive and discriminatory Protestant regime. Um, and they lost hope and shifted their support to the provisional IRA, who were the extreme um, group within their population advocating for violence. The provisional IRA really was a fringe movement and couldn't really grow until one thing happened. And that was um, in, the, in 1972. Um, you started to have the, the, uh, the Catholics began to protest more and more and more. Um, they had been emboldened by what was happening here in the United States during the civil rights movement, and they were modeling a lot of what they were doing in Northern Ireland with what um, African Americans were doing here. And they were becoming, uh, the protests were getting bigger. And the Protestant um, government was pushing back more 
more harshly, um, sending in paramilitary forces, and it was shifting into riots. And the Protestant government um, kind of panicked, and they called London and they asked Westminster to send British soldiers to Northern Ireland to come help them, help them pacify um, the Catholic population. They didn't consider actually reforming the government. That was not something that they were willing to do. So they called in the British soldiers, and Catholics were thrilled. They welcomed the British soldiers, which might seem counterintuitive, um, but it wasn't at the time because Catholics knew that the Ulster Protestants in Northern Ireland were bums. That's my that's they that they were that they were never going to change. That they were going to hold on to um, their disproportionate power no matter what happened. They knew that was going to be the case, but they thought the British were better, and they thought the British were truly democratic, and that the British, if they did get involved, would side with the Catholics because it was the Catholics who were being oppressed. And instead, the British soldiers went door to door in Catholic neighborhoods, dragged the men, threw them into jail, didn't hold trials, bashed people's head in, in public, and that then radicalized average Catholics, and, and suddenly the provisional IRA um, you know, ha had the support of the population to, to really kind of take off. Um, so you have with protests, yeah. Um, I was going to talk about elections, but we could talk about that later. Well, well, maybe there's, I'll give you an election example, but yeah. so I'm, I'm as an American politics scholar, yeah. right? So I was thinking about the, what the echoes are here. And when I was reading yeah. that, I was thinking of, of, of failed <clears throat> protests uh, that were deeply discouraging to marginalized communities, yeah. 1965, yeah. 1992, summer of 2020. Sparks that didn't turn into yeah. conflagrations, didn't turn into anything resembling the Troubles. And then I think of perhaps the most, the worst case scenario, if, you know, when maybe that you were thinking about when you're writing this book, certainly something that I was worried about, which was we had an election in 2020 in which the Sons of the Soil, right, the, the, the lost by an incredibly narrow margin, right? This was a very close election in 2020. It was contested. The side that was most aggrieved and best armed lost. Then they had a failed protest in the Capitol, and it did not lead. And you had a president who, who tried to overturn and tried to use his influence to overturn. And American institutions held strong. In much of the way that, you know, as an Americanist, I think of ours, ours as a very, as a relatively violent democracy that has had huge eras. You know, we're talking, in post bellum South, we're talking a, a thousand people killed per election. You know, mostly black Americans killed by state and non-state actors. You see violence again in the civil rights movement. You see work, uh, labor movement and anti-labor violence. You see tremendous number of assassinations of very important figures. You, you, you see attacks in 1954 where 30 shots are fired on, onto the House of Representatives floor. We've had all of these potential sparks, and yet we've had institutions that have remained resilient. What do we think, what, why do we think things are different now? And then pivoting, what are the ways to strengthen those institutions to, to, to fight back against, you know, larger risks? So one of the keys to, um, you know, the spark actually, you know, setting, setting a fire 
is if the government uses disproportionate force. Um, so if you have a situation where you have average citizens, they're protesting, they're unhappy with the government, they would like the status quo to change in a variety of ways, but they're but, but they're working within the system. Pro protesting actually is a sign that you believe in the system and that you believe that going out into the street is, is going to have an effect. If the government responds really disproportionately and, and they be, and, 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 and part of it could be, uh, you know, by accident. These things can spiral out of control. But part of it could just be, you know, the government just miscalculates or, or is the chain of command isn't particularly good. Um, if average citizens see the government attacking peaceful protesters, that has this, this really incendiary effect. And when I think about January 6th as such a great example, um, when January 6th happened, um, I got all these calls and emails. Um, people were shocked. They were horrified. And, and they, they kept asking me, what, what do you think? What do you think? And, and, I, and I said, you know, I said, actually, I'm relieved. I'm, I'm relieved in two ways. I'm relieved that this was so public and so egregious and so clear because, the, you know, I've been talking about the growth of domestic terror in the United States for, for 10 years. I've been talking about, um, you know, the, this problem that we have with far-right extremism and that they were arming themselves and they were training and nobody wanted to hear that message um, and now people believe it because it was out in the open so I actually think January 6th was a gift to the American public and to, to at least our politicians who who are willing to admit it because it brought this cancer out into the open and the second reason I was relieved was because the police response was so absent almost and and there was a lot a lot of criticism for the fact that um the the protesters let's call them protesters um were able to to walk into the the capitol and they were able to to you know tear down paintings and steal podiums and and people were really angry at this and as somebody who studies how these types of movements will explode and turn violent, I thought this is actually not fantastic, but this is also a gift because if there had been a harsh government response, the far right would have used this um, as, and they would have portrayed it as hard evidence that the federal government really is anti-American citizen, anti-patriot, um, and it would have grown their movement in a way that hasn't, hasn't happened. Um, and so this, the spark really, really is, is whether the, the, the government provides this evidence that, that extremists are going to use to grow their movement. Here in the United States, the far right, the militias that have been growing, about 65% of them are white supremacist groups. About 25% are anti-federal government groups. They're and there's overlap there. Their message is that the federal government is illegitimate, that it is overreaching the power that it has, and, and it needs to be eliminated. So you can imagine what would have happened if they had actually observed um, the federal 
federal government respond and responding to these um, protesters who truly believed they were American patriots who were defending the Constitution against uh, an election that was being stolen, illegally stolen. So if the government had responded, I think we would have had a much bigger problem on our hands. Great. So let's talk about other ways yeah. to prevent this. So you have questions. What are the best techniques to avoid a civil war? Um, I'm especially interested in the how to stop them part. And <laughs> how can alumni contribute to the peace process? <laughs> so what are the things that you would say are your yeah. prescriptions for America going forward? Yeah. yeah. So I actually think... One big prescription is simply to recognize that we have this problem. Um, and, and that's really important. We know the warning signs of civil wars. That's, that, again, is also a gift. We know what the preconditions are. And if you know what the preconditions are, then you can do something about it. And I'll give you a sense of how much, you know, maybe how much time we have. Governments that have those who are inocracies with these ethnic factions and that are put on this watch list um, for, and, and considered at high risk of civil war, they have about a 4% annual risk of civil war. 4%. That seems small, um, and in some ways it is, but in some ways it isn't. It means that every year that you do not change those two conditions, every year that you don't strengthen your democracy, every year that you have a party or parties that are, you know, appealing to, you know, race and religion and ethnicity as opposed to political ideas, every year it you increase um, 4%. So by... 10, 20, 30 years, the risk of civil war in any given year is, is quite high. So simply knowing these warning signs early means that we can do something to change it. Um, we now know how important it is to focus on strengthening our democracy. It's not neutral. And I, and I think Americans until recently were, were complacent, or, or for me, surprisingly complacent about democratic decline here because they're thinking, wow, we're a long way from Iran. Like, we're not going to become Iran. This is, you know, and even if we were, this is, this is, it's so far in the future, it's something we don't have to worry about. But if you, you know that it's anocracy where the violence happens, happen. And if you know that we actually were there at the end of 2020, then that puts an impetus to focus on that. So, so that is, you know, just acknowledge that the United States does have a problem um, and it's coming from within. And then, you know, actually, I'm going to throw this back to, <laughs> back to you, Thad, because you know a lot more about how you reform, you know, how do you strengthen America's democracies? You know, for me, you'd either do it from the, the top down or the bottom up. The Republican Party doesn't want to reform because the, the system as it as it currently stands, actually benefits them, and they, they'd actually like to cement in, you know, additional ways to to um, to lengthen their their rule. Um, um, but the Democrats, even if they wanted to reform our democracy, they tried with the filibuster. They don't have the votes to do that. Then, if it comes from the bottom up, you're counting on Americans willing to go out and actually peacefully protest demand that their politicians actually do something. And, you know, I think there's a lot of uncertainty about whether Americans are willing to do that at this point and whether they would be willing to sustain it. So what, 
how do we how do we reform American democracy? Well, you know, I think there are each part there. Are, each party is calling for certain reforms, right? And reform is in the eye of the beholder. And each of these reforms, right, would clearly benefit each party politically in the short term, right? Yeah. So if you talk, you know, and, and I think part of the idea is sort of how do you get beyond that to f- things where you can find some bipartisan consensus because they, they, in the absence of knowing who's going to win the next election, they will guarantee that whoever is the rightful winner will actually uh, take, take office. And so I think a lot of the election reform community is focused not on some of these important argument, d- debates we've been having about voting rights, but we've been having forever, and they're pretty deadlocked, and there's not a clear opportunity for solution, but about things like revising, modernizing the Electoral uh, Count Act, which, it, you know, which, is, which would basically ensure that state legislatures don't have the power to override votes of their public. Right? And a second is to preserve to ward off electrical, electoral manipulation. So the thing that saved American democracy, in some ways, uh, in, in my view, in, in, or the thing that saved the 2020 election, was how fragmented uh, into state and local control our electoral system was. Most countries have an electoral system that's centralized. Then the president, if they want to change and overthrow an election, they have that ability. But Donald Trump was left in the, in the he had, to much to his consternation, he had to call the Republican Secretary of State in Georgia to try to berate him into doing it. He had to spend all, all year trying to berate the Republican the, uh, Nevada Secretary of State and stop that person from doing mail-in voting. Uh, he tried to over, you know, get the Maricopa uh, County folks to override their election results. He failed in all of those because even members of his own party. And then he lost cases in Trump-appointed judges. The fragmentation of the American political system where we, radic- where we set in place radical checks and balances between state and local governments, between, uh, between judicial, executive, and legislative branches, uh, created, uh, allowed an opportunity um, for, 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 for people to do their job and stand up to the most powerful person in the world and stop him from stealing an election. What do you say about, you know, elections here in the United States really are decided by now just a handful of states it's the swing states. Everybody knows which states those are. And the Republican Party is now targeting those states to put loyalists um, in place who could then potentially overturn elections. So does that worry you? Does, does it worry you that, um, uh, y- you know, we now have a Supreme Court that's, that's very one-sided and um, is, is unlikely to, to serve as a, a, a check less likely to serve as a check on states and a, and a check on the executive as well. Um, like, what do you say about that? Right. So I think, I think that is worrying, and I promise we're going to get to you guys for questions. We could sit here all day, and we're going to have later opportunities to do that. So I'll try to summarize these things really quickly, my take on those. So, you know, look, Supreme Court's ebb and flow. Right now we have a Supreme Court where one of the seats – you know, didn't reflect the, the electoral outcomes, right? And, and, and in some ways, we have an illegitimacy to one of the seats, right? So I think that, that creates a problem, um, and, and, and it'll be a longstanding one. But the right way to attack that, I think, is to win elections rather than to, rather than to pack the court, right? And I think the Biden administration has been, you know, made the right political call on that. The second is our electoral college system, which doesn't empower small states or, or rural states. It empowers competitive states, creates incentives for people to run to the median voter in 
Michigan, Wisconsin, North Carolina, Virginia, Arizona, Georgia, uh, and, and, and Florida and Ohio, right? So the way that you win elections in America is by running to the middle. To relative, you know, now we don't have perfectly centrist candidates, but we have a lot more centrist candidates than we would get if the way to win American elections was a national popular vote system, which would mean the way to win the election is to run up the score for Democrats in California and New York, New York or to run up the score from Republicans in the deep south and mountain west, right? Plus, if you wanted to run an election, a nationwide presidential election, you would need billions and billions of dollars. And now we have a campaign finance system that for all its flaws, the presidential election hasn't been determined really by who, who raises the most money. Donald Trump got outraised by a ton in 2016 and still won the election. Right? We don't have, uh, we don't have a system where you have to run a national election and the electoral, and if we got rid of the electoral college and moved to a national vote, count. That would lead to some important things. We wouldn't have wrong winner elections with the popular and the electoral vote, going, but it would also create incentives to run to the wings and to rely on big funders much more than we have today. So, but I want to, but so let's go, we're, we're going to open it up to questions to you in a, in, in a couple minutes, but I want to give you the chance to, to bring this all together. Sort of, where are we now? You've been, you both wrote this book and you've been on this amazing journey. Uh, you, know, you can't turn on the television without seeing you. And you've been thinking and talking about this to people from all different perspectives. So how has that process changed your thinking? What is your thinking on this in, in, in March of 2022, and where do you think we're going on, on a civil war in America? You know, I'm much more hopeful today than I was even in November of last year, because I, as I said at the very beginning, I didn't think people would read this book. I didn't think this book would find an audience. And the fact that it has, and that it's resonated so much, and the fact that, that people are talking about it, um, <clears throat> you know, suggest that other people have been seeing these changes and they're worried about it and they want to do something about it. Um, I think this is the last book that people on the far right would ever like to see out there. It exposes what's happening. And again, it makes it more likely that our, our you know, and I, I know, for example, the FBI is much more active in, in trying to root out domestic terror than it was, um, you know, a year ago. Uh, you know, it's January 6th certainly helped. Um, <clears throat> um, Prior to January 6th, most of the money in the U.S. government, at the Department of Homeland Security, and at the, at, at the FBI was focused on rooting out Islamist um, terrorist organizations who, and they've been quite effective. There has not been an attack on the United States since January 11th, 2001. But, but focusing so heavily on that one type of foreign group um, meant that this bigger problem was being ignored. So, so I'm much hopeful in that way. And then actually I wanted to end with one other um, point about, about something that the U.S. government could do that would have a really, really big effect, and that is to regulate social media. I, I think social media, and in particular the recommendation engines that have been developed by the big tech companies – all five of them, by the way, are U.S. companies. So regulating this would be, <clears throat> would be relatively easy. 
Um, their recommendation engines are designed to keep people as engaged as possible on their devices. That's their business model. Um, the problem is the type of information that our reptilian brains like to focus on and that captures our attention more than anything else is the information that's incendiary, um, that taps into our emotions of fear, threat, insecurity, and it's ready-made for wannabe autocrats and for ethnic entrepreneurs who, who want to use identity to catapult themselves into power. It's, it's ready-made for them to get a bullhorn, and it, and it, it, it shunts um, information that's that's going to be unifying to the to the side. So so we have so uh, you know most Americans get their news from social media, um, and it's entirely unregulated. And I'm not saying sense, censor information. I actually don't think they should get into that business. Let people put whatever information they want online. But don't create a bullhorn where you take the most incendiary information and push it increasingly in the hands of individuals that we, that we now know serves to um, radicalize people on, on both sides of, of, of the debate. So we're, we're, you know, there's a reason why we're seeing democratic decline and the rise of ethnic nationalism and the rise of hate crimes um, at this particular point in time. It's because we have this new tool, um, this new medium out there that's, that's pushing um, that sort of message and, that, and that's creating an environment for that to happen. You call it the accelerant in your book. Yeah. Although I'll note one sort of happy silver lining is the people who are going to kidnap Gretchen Whitmer, they got caught because they, they posted about it on social media. So, you know, if, if you want to, the, the, the kind of nice way to balance surveillance and security with civil liberties is, you know, you don't have to spy on people if they're just going to post it right, and tweet about it. So, um, all right. We have a microphone in the back. And so I see a couple hands will go, uh, will go here, there, um, and, and then into the middle. Yeah. If there would be a civil war, who would be fighting it? I guess would be my question. Like, who were, who were, because like we're a series of states, right? And the kind of different, I guess, tribal identities are, are mixed within the different states. What would you see would be the combatants and if, there's, if, you're, if we're talking civil war? So if, if a civil war happens here in the United States, it's not going to look like um, what we had in the 1860s. It's going to, it's going to be what we call an insurgency. Um, and, and that's, you could think of it as a modern type of civil war, but it's especially the type of civil war you see in countries with powerful governments and powerful militaries. Um, and, and insurgencies tend to be decentralized. They tend to be fought by um, multiple different militias, paramilitary groups. <clears throat> sometimes they work together, sometimes they, they don't. Um, and the reason why you tend to see those types of conflicts is because they don't want to engage the military. If, if they are in head-to-head -head battle with the U.S. military, they're going to lose. And so they're going to use non-conventional tactics, guerrilla warfare, where you have a bomb here, a bomb there, and then domestic terror that's going to be directed at both civilians and at, and at infrastructure. So the people who are going to who are going to fight this here in the United States are the militias that have been forming. 
Um, it's going to be the far-right groups, some of which um, are, have a military arm, some of which don't have a military arm yet. There are already groups in, here in the United States. They're called accelerationists. Um, accelerationists are groups that believe that they need to accelerate the path to civil war. They need to start a civil war <clears throat> because that's the only way that the United States is is going to uh, that they're going to save the United States? Their logic isn't isn't really very clear, um, but it's this notion that you have to burn it all down to to rebuild it. Um, they ha actually have a um, they have a manual of how they're going to do it. It's called the Turner Diaries. You used to be able to buy it on on Amazon. Um, it's a fictitious account of a civil war in the United States, but it's really a manual of how to take down the U.S. federal government. Um, and um, it talks about their, their strategy, which they call leaderless resistance. Um, and it's really a form of cell warfare where you don't have a hierarchical organization. You have lots of different cells. Those are militias. Um, and um, and they're launching attacks throughout the country. Um, and they're very clear when they say that they're going to do it this way because that is the hardest thing for the government to try to infiltrate and the hardest thing for the government to try to to prevent and deter. Um, back in, I bought a copy of the Turner Diaries from Amazon back in December of 2020. It was in the top, I think, 50 of all books on, on Amazon. When I purchased it, Amazon, you know, underneath they gave you a whole list of recommended titles that you could just click on to add to your cart, and it included Mein Kampf. It included, um, you know, five or six anti-Semitic and, and, and racist um, uh, books. Um, and it was really quite astounding that if, that if you wanted to go down that path and, and figure out <clears throat> how these, what these groups were thinking, they're very public about it. It's just that most Americans aren't paying attention. Does economics play a role in this? I, I read an article <laughs> several years ago which said that 40% of all U.S. households are living paycheck to paycheck with less than $400. And it was based, the, the article was the decline of the American middle class. Does that play a role in this? Thank you. Yeah. Yes, it does. So <clears throat> the most important um, factor in what types of groups tend to mobilize and fight, the sons of the soil, is whether they lose political power. That seems to be much more um, motivating for them than economic loss. But if, it, if they also suffer economic loss, so there's an economic crisis at the same time, um, then that compounds it and those types of groups are even more likely to, to mobilize resistance. And I'm trying to think of what would be a great, um, <clears throat> what would be a great example. Um, you know, I, I didn't talk about it much in the book, but the, um, so the, the Catholics in Northern Ireland, for example, they were discriminated against for, for decades, um, but they were increasingly shut out of, of the more lucrative jobs. And so economically, they were declining over time as well. And if you look here in the United States, um, you know, the Republican Party didn't become an ethnic faction really until, you know, 
the, the Obama era. Prior to 2008, white Americans were equally likely to vote for, almost equally likely to vote for Democrats as Republicans. Um, but when Barack Obama was elected, the white working class began to gravitate from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party. And, and that was surprising to many uh, political scientists because from an economic perspective, the Democratic Party's policies were more in line with the working class. Um, but if you think about what's happened to the white working class um, since the Clinton era, Clinton signed the NAFTA, um, and on uh, the average American benefited from that, but there were losers in that process. And the losers were um, those Americans who had enjoyed uh, fairly well-paying union jobs in the manufacturing sector. And those jobs left the United States and they never came back. And neither party, including the Democrats who, who signed this bill, um, the Democrats didn't put any sort of safety net in place um, to, to support the losers in this process. And so if you look to see how the white working class has done on a host of measures, marriage rates, um, opioid addiction, um, suicide rates, um, uh, um, annual salary, um, whether they own their own home or not, they have declined um, over the last, um, I don't know, maybe a few decades. Um, but and while Latinos and African Americans at worst have remained steady. Now, that doesn't mean that that you know, white working class is doing worse um, than these other groups, but they feel it in what we know about Sons of the Soil is what motivates them is this sense of loss of status, this loss of privilege, um, um, and, <clears throat> and it's relative to what they are seeing from other people in society. And I, and I think the white working class you know, has observed that they are doing not only worse than their parents were, were doing, but they're doing worse than, than, for example, people with fancy degrees who, who live on the coast and are, and are competitive in the new economy that's emerged. Look, we have all been in some ways frightened by, by what we've heard today, but, but most importantly, we've been enlightened, right? We, the United States is now on, on our watch list, right? And, and, and importantly, uh, the people across the United States have, have heard this book, have, have understood its arguments, have grappled with it, whether they, uh, wh whether they, whether we, some of us put our, still put our heads in the sands or not, we have now heard, uh, from, from a voice that used to be in the wilderness, but now is squarely in, in the middle of a conversation. And, and so we're so grateful that that voice is from UC San Diego. That voice is, is, is from, uh, uh, GPS, uh, and, and that that voice is Barb Walters. So thank you so much, Barb. Yeah, thank you, Thad, and thank you, everybody, for coming. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.